traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. In The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, we saw a neighborhood tear itself apart when a drop of suspicion turned into a wave and neighbor turned against neighbor. As we found out, that was an alien plot to use one of humanity's worst traits against them, and it worked a season later, and Rod Serling now returns to that theme, but mixes up the ingredients a little bit. He reduces the number involved, he makes the location even smaller, but this time he actually puts an alien into the mix. But don't tell the audience which one it is, or don't even tell them that the alien is really there, and maybe lighten up the tone a little. So these are our ingredients, and in Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone, Douglas Brody wrote that with the situation in place, this allows Sailing and Montgomery Pittman to develop one of Zone's telling themes. Normalcy is a myth. Under close scrutiny, seemingly everyday people all at once appear suspicious. So in tonight's episode, after reports of a strange object coming down in the area, troopers Bill Paget and Dan Perry investigate to find a set of tracks leading from the crash site to a local diner in which there's a cook, a bus driver, and seven passengers who had been on his bus. But the driver only remembers that there was actually six, so the troopers are soon asking, Will the real Martian please stand up? Wintry February night, the present. Order of events, a phone call from a frightened woman, notating the arrival of an unidentified flying object. Then the checkout you just witnessed with two state troopers verifying the event but with nothing more enlightening to add beyond evidence of some tracks leading across the highway to a diner. You've heard of trying to find a needle in a haystack? Well, stay with us now and you'll be part of an investigating team whose mission is not to find that proverbial needle. No, their task is even harder. They've got to find a Martian in a diner. And in just a moment, you'll search with them because you've just landed in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on May 26, 1961. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Montgomery Pittman. Now it seems like it's been a while since we've had a new Twilight Zone director. At least one who stuck around for a while and directed more than one or two episodes. So enter Montgomery Pittman. Still quite early in his directing career at this point. His credits go back about five or six years. And he was doing the rounds in some of the shows of the time like Maverick. 77 Sunset Strip, that kind of thing. He was originally a Broadway actor and would still occasionally get in front of the camera, but at this stage, being behind it was his main focus. He would often write and direct episodes of TV shows because he would then have more control over the whole thing and the quality of the finished show, so a man after Rod Serling's heart. 
Now this was his first Twilight Zone, but he would go on to direct five in total. This one, the episode two, The Grave, Dead Man's Shoes, and The Last Rite of Jeff Myrtlebank. And of those, Dead Man's Shoes is the only one he didn't write. So he has made his mark in the Twilight Zone, and undoubtedly that mark would have been bigger had he not sadly passed away from cancer at the young age of 45 in 1962. Amy Archer in Variety magazine wrote of his passing, Monty Pittman was braver than any character he wrote or directed. He fought cancer to the last. I have commented in the last couple of episodes how the sets looked kind of fabricated, and in Shadowplay that was to its advantage. Will the real Martian stand up has that fabricated feel about it too. There are only two sets used which were both built on the MGM lot. The exterior of the diner stretching out into the woodlands and the interior of the diner itself. And Rod Serling is right in the mix there too, stood in his overcoat, trademark cigarette in hand, getting snowed on and this snow effect cost the production $600 and the exterior itself only cost $350. So while it does look fabricated, it is difficult to pull off a convincing feeling of being outdoors on a soundstage, but I think it works for the episode. It kind of adds to that feeling of isolation that these people are trapped in a small area. As the troopers enter the diner, they pass a bus, and the name on that bus is Cayuga, which was a little nod to the Twilight Zone production company, Cayuga Productions. Whose bus is this out here? That's mine, officer. What's the problem? The bridge up ahead has been declared temporarily impassable. Ice flow stacked up against it. Another pound of weight, and it could be driftwood. That's rough. Can't turn around and go back. There's a slide up there at the turnoff. It's blocked the whole road. Looks like you're kind of marooned. Till morning, anyway. Till morning? I've got to be in Boston at 9 a.m. And you better start walking, mister. Because that bus stays out there until they fix the bridge. When the troopers enter the diner, we, we meet our cast. And I quite enjoy how each person in the diner has their own distinct look and personality. It kind of reminds me of an old whodunit English stage play or a Miss Marple mystery where you'd have the vicar, the brigadier, the gardener, the lord and lady of the manor, and all these very distinctly different types. But this time it's through an early 60s American lens. So we do have a fairly big cast here. Not all of them have much to do, but I will touch upon some of them as we go through. Maybe not go into their bios so much because there are so many. Some of them are Twilight Zone regulars, and we've already met one of them in season two. Well, two of them actually. John Hoyt, who plays the crabby businessman Ross, who needs to be in Boston by the morning. He played Dr. Lauren in The Lateness of the Hour, the creator of those lifelike robots whose wife enjoyed the occasional massage. So we've spoken about him before, but it's nice to see a different type of character from him this time round. And we also have Barney Phillips as the cook Haley, and he was in A Thing About Machines. The trooper Bill Padgett is played by John Archer, and we spoke recently on the show to David Avalone, who wrote the comic miniseries Twilight Zone Shadow, and John Archer actually played the Shadow 
on the radio show for a year in 1944. Now the other trooper, Dan Perry, is played by Morgan Jones, who we'll see again in the episode, The Parallel. There comes a point in this type of story where you have to start to escalate things, get the suspense moving. And in this episode, it begins with a rather ominous music cue. Bus, weren't they? What's the trouble? Are you looking for somebody? Driver, um, you got a passenger manifest? Passenger manifest? What do you think I got parked out there? A 707? Mister, that's a 14 year old bus and business is lousy. I don't ask passengers their names. We kiss them gently and help them in. We're that glad to have them, with or without names. You know how many you had? Six? Unless one of them fell out the window when we hit a bump. I picked up six, and I'm supposed to deliver six. Nobody fell out. Somebody must have jumped in. There are uh, seven here now. So what a great setup this is. There's one extra person in the diner who came off the bus. Most of us at one time or another have used public transport. But how much do we really take notice of the people around us? I think it's a great way to ask the audience that question. Who would you really recognise if you were put into this situation? Quite possibly, as the bus driver shows later on, it might be the person who you find most attractive. So as the characters try to solve this little mystery, Rod Sailing throws in a bit of a red herring. Which one of you wasn't on the bus? We were all on the bus. What kind of interrogation is this anyway? If we're going to be grilled, I want to talk to a lawyer. <laughs> That's a good one. First he wants no shoes, then he wants a lawyer. I don't remember seeing you on the bus. That's quite funny, because I don't remember seeing you neither. Makes one of us a liar, don't it? <laughs> this is preposterous. What difference does it make who was on the bus and who wasn't, or whether there were six or seven or 120? Is this a diner or a Gestapo headquarters? Now, the character of Avery is played by Jack Elam, and... He's clearly supposed to be the most unusual of the bunch, which makes him a clear candidate for being the Martian. At this stage in his career, he was often used as a heavy because of his grizzled look and his distinctive left eye that was sightless due to a childhood fight. But to me, I'll always remember him when he was older, a bit heavier and even gruffer than he is here when he played Dr. Nicholas Van Helsing in the Cannonball Run movies in the 80s. Now they've done their best to age him up here. He's supposed to be an old man, but he's actually only about 40 years old at this point. And I think he's probably a bit too much of an obvious red herring to be a real suspect, but he is good fun. Now they have introduced this element that there is a Martian in their midst and I guess if you put yourself in their shoes, it might be a little hard to swallow. And they seem to accept it quite quickly, but it has to come at some point, so we go with it. So now is the time that they ask, will the real Martian please stand up? Not in so many words, but it wasn't always going to be the case because the original story treatment was called The Big Rain. And in that story, after seeing a meteor sink, into a bog, 
a young patrolman goes to a diner where there are five customers and the owner inside. Each customer has a probable story about how they got to be there and the patrolman goes through each story. The reveal is that it was actually a dog that the owner of the diner had taken in. So the next working title was The Missing Martian, but the initial draft of that script was called Nobody Here But Us Martians. So that doesn't really make sense in the context here because there's only one actual Martian. The title that they ended up using, Will the Real Martian Please Stand Up, was a play on the game show To Tell the Truth, where the host Bud Collier used the phrase Will the Real, whatever celebrity it was that week, please stand up? And it seems that now the Twilight Zone has kind of outlived that use of it, as far as I know, anyway. Well, I'm no expert on ice hockey, but I know when I see darned pants. And that's why I asked him <laughs> if his pants were darned, because when I looked at him up there, he has the most beautiful darns in his pants, and they look well-worn. Detroit can afford a new So pants. I voted for number one. <laughs> So, the votes are all in, finally, and mine's made up after a fashion. Let's find out now which one of these three gentlemen, in truth, is Gordie Howe. Will the real Gordie Howe please stand up? So, the currency for this type of episode is the interplay between the characters. And now we're around the middle point, where that kind of thing begins. And for me, it's the most enjoyable segment. Everyone chiming in with their piece about how they can't be the Martian and suspicion starting to build. You were all on the bus together. You would have known who the other passengers were. Well, that don't cut any ice. They loaded in the snow at Hook's Landing. To tell you the truth, I don't know who got on. She's just like a science fiction, that's what she is. A regular Ray Bradbury. Six humans and one monster from outer space. If the episode is dispensing with the couples, then I will too, because they really didn't have that much to do. I won't go into their bios, but you will probably recognise Bill Irwin playing Peter Kramer. He was the man in the older of the two couples. In his late career, he was pretty much a professional old guy because he had this shock of white hair and a sort of very crinkled face, or almost like a caricature of an old man and he popped up in in all kinds of things so so he's probably more recognizable as an older man than he is here what's your name is ethel mcconnell i'm a professional dancer how many legs how many legs i'm gonna belt you grandpa she was on the bus how do you know she's the only one i noticed well thank you but who noticed him <laughs> Ethel McConnell, the single female in the diner, is played by Jean Wiles, and she's an interesting actress, I think. She's about 37 years old at this point, and although she's not coming to the end of her career, she's reaching a certain point in it. Her stock in trade was as the curvy gangster's mole type of character, or saloon girl, Something that this episode of The Twilight Zone doesn't really do much to change by having that saxophone music kicking in when we first see her smouldering at the table as she smokes a cigarette. Later on, the, the bus driver and one of the cops will be looking at her behind as she's going into the bus, that kind of thing. 
She undoubtedly does do that sexy noirish smouldering look very well, but her IMDb bio says that she probably never really got the career that she deserved. She was sort of pigeonholed into those type of roles when she was actually more intelligent and talented than she was given credit for. Now those types of roles, the gangster's mall and the saloon girl, will generally call for the younger woman. So, so while she did work a lot in the 1950s when she was in her late 20s and 30s, her career slowed down in the 60s and she retired in 1976 so maybe an example of how limiting the business can be for women and there's maybe a few echoes of Barbara Jean Trenton but I hope in Jean's case that her retirement was a happy one. As the story unfolds a couple of strange things happen in the diner. The jukebox goes on by itself, the lights start turning themselves on and off, which if they are being caused by this Martian is a bit odd because the Martian is trying to hide amongst these people so why add fuel to the fire that something is not quite right? But we'll stick a pin in that and come back to it later. But these tricks do help to start to build the suspense and a feeling of unease, especially when the ashtrays on the table all start to flip over. It's okay? All right, thanks. The bridge is okay. Well, it's about time. Shall we go? What do you think, Perry? You can't hold him. You're, you're making a big mistake, officer. Big mistake. You're letting the monster out. That may well be, old man. It may well be. We can't hold somebody on suspicion of being a monster. So with the bridge being safe, they all get back onto the bus and go along their way. Now... I'm going to stop for a moment because at about this time during the recording of the show I like to light up a cool, refreshing Oasis cigarette. No, I don't really, but, but in unlocking the door to a television classic, Martin Grams Jr. has quite a lengthy entry with this episode about how Rod Serling finally relented and accepted some form of product placement in the show. His relationship with sponsors and the commercial side of television had always been a turbulent one. He kind of felt it was a necessary evil that he tolerated more than he embraced. But at this point in the show, he did bow to the pressure to have some sort of product placement. And considering that fairly regularly in his intros he was smoking, the most likely product was cigarettes. Now, the company was Liggett and Myers, and what they wanted Sailing to do was to advertise their brand of cigarettes, Oasis. The pitch they gave to him was that he was kind of stepping out of the shadows, and he says, Step out with me, out of the twilight zone of smoking, to new Oasis. The only filter cigarette that's Oasis cool, Oasis mild, Oasis fresh. The tobacco is soothed for the softest taste of all, and menthol misting makes it so. Try Oasis. So in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, Martin Grams Jr. writes, It is apparent that Sailing did not want to personally appear in filmed commercials for L&M. In a letter dated February 24, 1961 to Graham, Sailing explained, 
the smell of cordite and battle that must have permeated the ethereal regions of McCann Erickson came from a few muzzle blasts from the CBS programmers on the coast, who reacted somewhat violently to my stepping out of character to peddle Oasis cigarettes on the new crop of Twilight Zone shows. It was their contention, and I have to agree with them, that unlike Bob Stack or the other personalities who portray actual dramatic roles, my situation is somewhat unique in that I am Rod Sailing to begin with, and there is no natural point of transition where I can step over and do a commercial. I understand, however, that the fight was lost and that I will do my 15 second bit with what is hopefully a smiling professionalism. I'm sorry we got into this hassle at all, but at least it's been settled and we will break our backs out here to try and figure out a smooth and unobtrusive way of handling it. And he then ended, Some gracious soul at L&M has been sending me two cartons of cigarettes a week. Do you suppose you could find out who's responsible for this so I can drop them a note of thanks? Also, I intend to give them the address of my doctor, who every three months counts the spots on my lungs and advises me to start taking it with a needle. I keep telling him that at public gatherings, this is a little obvious and somewhat socially frowned upon. So that particular arrangement didn't last too long. I think they did a few kind of segments, but it didn't last forever. But back to the story. Shortly after the bus leaves, a solitary figure goes back to the diner. Didn't you go out on that bus? I did indeed. Oh yes, I went out on that bus. And you know something? That bridge wasn't safe. It collapsed. The state police car, the bus, everything. Kaplunk, right into the river. It was a terrible scene, no one got out. Except you. Except me. <laughs> lucky, I guess, huh? Very lucky. But, but... But what? You're not even wet. Wet? What's wet? What do you mean, what's wet? You landed in the river, but your clothes are all dry. Illusion, that's all. Just an illusion. Like that jukebox playing in the corner. That's an illusion, too. What are you, some kind of magician? <laughs> Who, me? Oh, hardly. Now, uh, before you uh, faint dead away, I ought to explain that the name isn't really Ross. And uh, I wasn't really going to Boston. No, I was sent as a kind of advance scout. You know these uh, cigarettes, do you call them? They taste wonderful. We haven't got a thing like this on Mars. That's incidentally where I come from. We're beginning to colonize. My friends will be arriving very shortly. I think they're going to like it here. It's a lovely area. So... so remote, so pleasant, so off the beaten track. Just the perfect spot for a colony, don't you think, Mr. Haley? While we're uh, waiting, how about a little what you call music? I don't mind. I have to do a little waiting myself. You see, Mr. Ross, my name isn't Haley. And I do agree with you, this is an extraordinary place to colonize. 
We folks on Venus had the same idea. We got it several years ago. And I think I really ought to tell you now that your friends are not coming. They've been intercepted. Oh, a colony is coming. But it's from Venus. I do like this final sequence where Ross comes back to the diner and he has a quiet, confident, menacing attitude about him. And although it didn't really make any sense earlier that the Martian who was trying to hide was causing all these things to happen, I think his demeanour here shows that he was probably just enjoying terrorising people and making them uneasy. So he was probably doing these things for that reason. What doesn't really make sense though is that he doesn't understand the word wet. I think that part of the reveal could have been done better because up until now his use of English has been perfect. So the stinger here is that we then find out that Haley, the cook, is a Venusian and it's probably the most publicized plot twist ever along with the reveal of the Statue of Liberty at the end of Planet of the Apes. You know, they put that image of Charlton Heston kneeling in front of the Statue of Liberty now on DVD box sets, and it's the big plot twist of the movie. And it's the same with the image of Barney Phillips with the eye in the center of his forehead. Now initially, the Venusian was supposed to have four eyes, but they ended up going with this single eye in the center of his head. The makeup man William Tuttle actually connected a wire through the eye so that it would move left and right. Now, some people give this eye effect a, you know, a bit of grief. I think it's okay for the time, you know, and it's only a little stinger, so it's absolutely fine. Sometimes when I do this show, you get a feeling for how loved an episode is before I cover it from either emails or comments on Twitter or Facebook where people say, I can't wait for you to cover this one. And this was one of those episodes where there was a certain amount of pre-buzz. Now, I want people to enjoy the shows about their favourite episodes, but it is always a bit of a tricky prospect because I am reviewing the episodes and while I do try to be balanced and reasoned, ultimately we're all different and what works for one person won't work for another and they won't always work for me. As I started to watch this one I was thinking to myself I'm not sure I like this one as much as everyone else seems to but I'll come back to that soon. I do enjoy this kind of story people trapped in a location where one of the people is a threat for some reason. I think John Carpenter's The Thing is one of the best examples of that kind of story. The monsters are due on Maple Street was able to build tension in a small amount of time. Now admittedly there's a bit of a jump near the beginning where things advance rather quickly, but it gets there. But that's quite a busy episode where people are getting themselves worked up into a frenzy. This is a much stiller and quieter episode and I think it's going for a different type of suspense. And as such I think Maybe it needs a bit more time to build that suspense and make it truly effective. More time to let the people talk to each other so we can have our suspicions moving around the characters as well as they become suspicious of each other. Words are the currency in an episode like this and I just feel we could do with a few more of them. But on the other hand, I do think they do well with the time they have. 
Now, because it is all done mainly in the one room, it's kind of like a stage play, and it has actually been performed on stage at least once. In my research, I came across a very charming production by the Nashcom College Drama Club, which they did on October 31st, 2014, in which they performed this on stage. One of them didn't get off the bus. Which one of you didn't get off the bus? Listen, we were all on the bus. What type of interrogation is this anyway? If we're going to be grilled, I want to speak to a lawyer. <laughs> First he wants some snowshoes and, and, and then he wants a lawyer. I don't remember seeing you on the bus. Well, that's funny because I don't remember seeing you neither. Kind of makes one of us a liar, don't you? <laughs> this is preposterous. What difference does it make who was on the bus or who wasn't? Whether there were five or six or 120. Is this a diner or Gestapo headquarters? Oh, now. Take it easy, mister. What's this all about? So while this is a similar theme to other Twilight Zones, it does have a kind of flavour on its own. That stage play flavour that gives it a little something unique. So what about that twist, the twist that Haley is actually a Venusian? Again, I'm not completely sold on it. On the one hand, it's kind of fun that they've used the unique shape of the cook's hat to cover this third eye up throughout. But it's not one of those twists that you can go back through the episode and say, ah, right, okay. Because a good twist for me is something where you could conceivably guess what it is through the content of the episode. And if it's good enough, the story will divert your attention away from it until it is actually revealed. Then you look back and you see the little clues that were always there all along. Whereas this, it just kind of lands here and it does feel unearned, but while I do think it's unearned, I still really like it. And that seems to be a running theme with, will the real Martian please stand up for me? You might think I'm being a bit nitpicky on some things, and I am, because I do think there are some flaws with it, but despite all of them, I still really enjoy this one, and it has a great sense of place, even though the place is quite artificial. The characters are enjoyable. They might not be the deepest of characters, but they all have their own identity. And like I said earlier, very much like some whodunit parlor game or stage play. The humor is light, and it seems that by not going for the big laughs, Sailing is much more comfortable in this space of just being amusing and a little darker. And this episode seems to get stronger for me, actually, when I look back at it and I rewatched it, it seems to get better and better as it goes. Past Twilight Zone reboots have tried to remake old episodes, not usually with the greatest of success or appreciation from the fans, but I think with some real care, this one would be a good candidate for an update. Make it a little longer, give us more time to let the characters talk to each other and build some suspense and let our suspicions go from one character to another. Of course, they might have to end it differently because we all know the twist now. And speaking of different endings, originally, Rod Serling closed this one out differently. He said, Incident on a small island, to be believed or disbelieved, depending on your frame of reference, your imagination, and whether or not you're from Missouri. 
but no matter the degree of your scepticism, if a sour-faced dandy named Ross, who looks like a stocks and bond salesman, or a big, good-natured counterman, who handles a spatula as if he'd been born with one in his mouth, if either of these two entities walks into your premises, you better hold their hands, all three of them, or check the colour of their eyes, all four of them. The gentleman in question might try to pull you into the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Incident on a small island, to be believed or disbelieved. However, if a sour-faced dandy named Ross, or a big good-natured counterman who handles a spatula as if he'd been born with one in his mouth, if either of these two entities walk onto your premises, you better hold their hands, all three of them, or check the color of their eyes, all three of them. The gentleman in question might try to pull you into the Twilight Zone. So there it is. Will the real Martian please stand up? Bit of a difficult one for some reason. I, I sometimes struggle to get an angle on something, and that sometimes makes the episode feel a bit disjointed. But I hope you enjoyed it anyway. So before we get to the listener feedback, I just want to make you aware of a couple of things. There's a new website for the podcast. Now, long-time listeners will be thinking, another new website? Well, yeah, the thing is, over the years, I've kind of done the rounds with websites for one reason or another, but let's go back to how it probably should have stayed in the first place. The TwilightZonePodcast.com is now the home of the Twilight Zone podcast. So it's simple to find the twilightzonepodcast.com and I've even recorded a small intro episode for the podcast feed because new listeners, if they start from the beginning, they'll be hearing me talking about all these different websites I've done over the years. So it's going to remain this one, the twilightzonepodcast.com and there's also a new Facebook page as well, Facebook slash Twilight Zone Podcast. So come over hit like and hopefully we can get things moving over there as well. Okay, so let's have a read of some listener emails in submitted for your approval. I've had a message from Chris. He says, Tom, I'm still getting caught up. I'm on the Eye of the Beholder episode of the podcast. I guess I found the podcast late and I'm trying to binge my way through it. And I'm following all the dramatic turns the podcast has taken from you leaving it and another person hosting and you coming back again. Meanwhile, all of this has taken place while you already made your way back and I'm experiencing it on an alternate timeline. But I digress. I was writing about Shadowplay. I don't know if you covered this. I don't want to skip ahead. Yes, I did cover it. But I was listening to the commentary on Vanilla Sky, Tom Cruise, Penelope Cruise movie, and Shadowplay is playing on the large screen in Times Square, which Tom Cruise runs through. An oddly empty Times Square. The shot was done, with no special effects, by the way. They used this episode as commentary on the movie itself, because Tom Cruise's character's reality is twisted. That info was always stuck in the back of my mind, and I would like to share it. I would say I'm glad to have you back, but as far as I know, in 2017, you may not be. So I will say I'm glad you're on these episodes I'm currently listening to. Well, that kind of uh, ties into to what I just said that, you know, there is the kind of, um, as Chris calls it, 
the dramatic turns throughout it, you know, the changing of websites when Luke took over, that kind of thing. And I think it's quite interesting, you know, that it has its own little narrative, I suppose. So thanks for that, Chris. Appreciate it. I had a message from Raphael. He says, I want to say that I have pretty much binged the podcast. I've actually played a few of them more than once. The podcast is both entertaining and informative. I have a couple of observations. Although I kind of liked Perchance to Dream, in watching it again recently, I noticed that the main character saw the receptionist when he first arrived at the office. In fact, he takes a very long look at her prior to entering the doctor's office. This sort of makes the episode nonsensical in my opinion. If he noticed her when he came in, then why would he be afraid of her later? Okay, on to another subject. I've been binging the Twilight Zone as well as your podcast, even season 4 which contains the hour-long episodes. I've noticed something. People are always sweating on the Twilight Zone. It's not just Telly Savalas in Live and Doll. It's pretty much everyone else in every episode, especially the men. Were the lights that hot? That would be an interesting bit of trivia. Why so much sweat? Anyway, keep up the great work on the podcast, Raphael. I have to admit, I've not really noticed it, to be honest, but I think, you know, I'll look out from here from here. Thanks very much, Raphael. I've had an email from Sasha, and she says, Hi, Tom writing to say how much I genuinely appreciate all of the hard work and dedication you've put into this podcast. The Twilight Zone is as near and dear to me as any television show has been. It has not only been the standard to which I hold all modern sci-fi, but also a paragon of great writing in general. I recently enjoyed listening to Mike Wallace's interview with Rod Serling. In it, I believe, Serling talks about how science fiction as a genre can carry the philosophical and ethical burdens of such heavy topics as race relations. It can do this because it wraps its true message within layers of metaphor, allowing sailing a somewhat safer or less controversial vehicle for important social commentaries, something he had previously fought tooth and nail to preserve in his other writing efforts against producers and censors who would see everything be whitewashed over. This sentiment is one that speaks to the importance of this show in its own time and also why it seems to remain so relevant today. These stories are at their most basic scaffolding, moral cautionary tales about where humanity could be headed if we desired to pursue or glorify the darkness within us. Ultimately, I think the biggest strength of the Twilight Zone is its ability to handle these very darkest of humanity's moments and place them in a context in which they are removed, just enough for us to be able to examine them somewhat objectively, and by extension, examine our own behaviour and values. This make-believe realm in which we are shown the depths to which humanity can lower itself is over the horizon, or as it were, a hundred yards over the rim. Yet in every episode we are also reminded that horizon is actually a ledge on which we are precariously poised. Sailing's beginning and ending narrations make sure we are soberly reminded of the fact that these characters could be any one of us, and in reality reflects parts inside all of us. I'm excited that through your podcast, a show which I feel is bafflingly underrated and underappreciated, is getting its due attention. Twilight Zone so often crossed and bent genres as quickly as it created them, something that I don't think gets enough recognition within the world of modern sci-fi today. So thank you for all the time and energy you put into everything you do on this podcast. And please know 
that your thoughtful commentary and research doesn't go unnoticed. Best regards, Sasha. I thought that was a, a fabulous email there from Sasha. So thank you for your kind words. And, you know, she really kind of encapsulates what the Twilight Zone is and what it does in just a couple of paragraphs. So thank you very much. And I hope you don't remain a lurker forever because she uh, she titles this one Long Time Lurker here. So don't stay a lurker. I hope we hear from you again sometime. I've had an email from Ari and he says, Hello, I've been enjoying your podcasts and they have been getting better and better. The Twilight Zone was my show. I saw all of the available half-hour ones multiple times as a teenager. On Sunday morning, my family would get that week's TV listing with all the week's Twilight Zone episodes listed. Every time I Have the Beholder came up in the rotation, some not very savvy newspaper employee would reprint the following description. Woman is beautiful in land where everyone is ugly. Incidentally, I've had quite varied reactions to that episode. After I first saw it as a teenager, I tended to avoid it because I already knew the reveal. I thought almost smugly that the 24-minute episode could easily have been whittled down to five. When I eventually did come back to it, I was quite impressed with the parts dealing with the dangers of totalitarianism and conformity made me struggle a bit there, Ari, which of course were the far greater messages of the episode, and yet I avoided it again for a while. When I revisited it once more though, I was struck by the idea that the dictatorship under which the characters lived had a policy that it considered quite compassionate. The idea that the people with the woman's condition could have X number of surgeries before being sent away, and that the place to which they were sent would cater to their every need. The man who comes to the hospital to bring the woman to the colony is genuinely kind and seems ready to lend her unlimited emotional support. Sometimes tyranny comes in very unexpected, even pleasing forms. This further twist made me respect the eye of the beholder greatly, and these days I rarely miss it when it comes up in the rotation. Your friend in Minnesota, Ari. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, Sailing could have chosen for the the actual fate of people who for whom the surgery failed could have been death or something like that, but he chose this instead, quite a quite a hopeful outlook in the end. So good thoughts there, Ari. Thanks for getting in touch. Okay, so there's our listener emails. Just one final thank you as well to a listener called Portia. She sent me a book recently. It was a Twilight Zone book that she'd found in a sale and uh, quite an old Twilight Zone book, which I don't actually have in my collection, which was nice. So it was very thoughtful and I appreciate it. So thank you, Portia. Okay, so that's enough from me. I just want to say thank you to Madam KDF, Server23 and Lynx, which I believe is Frank, isn't it? On US iTunes for some new reviews. So I'm nearly at that 100 mark and Peter Ward 101 has broken the um the drought over in England for iTunes reviews so thanks for that Peter it's been a while since I've had one in England so appreciate that thank you you can email me at tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and next time round we are looking at the final episode of season two which is the obsolete man and then after that we will have a few special episodes leading up to episode 100. So join me next time for The Obsolete Man, and I will speak to you soon.
Thank you.